Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. It's Pollinator Week. Yes, indeed. It is Pollinator Week, and for that occasion, we are going to talk the birds and the bees. No, 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 it's not that kind of podcast. But it is birds, the bees, habitat, and we're going to have a lot of fun uh, talking Pollinator Week and how it connects to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever mission. And to help us, we've got a, uh, a frequent contributor to the On the Wing podcast. If, if we talk pollinators and monarchs, he is my go-to co-host. He is my shotgun rider. He is the Eddie Vedder of Pheasants Forever <laughs> and Quail Forever. Yeah, you know him, you love him. From Nebraska, Drew Larson. Welcome back, Drew. Hey, Bob. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a great intro. I don't know if I can uh, fill those Eddie Vedder shoes or not, but uh, well, do my best. Let's, uh, let, since, you know, it, it has been a couple months since you've been on. Um, so folks that maybe haven't heard you on before, let's start with your introduction. And, and you got to obviously tell people why. Why I mentioned Eddie Vedder on a Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever podcast with your name. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been with the organization just about 16 years now. Uh, half of those years, I kind of served as the regional representative for Western Nebraska, Eastern Colorado. Uh, since then, I've uh, served as our education and outreach uh, director I just kind of help oversee a lot of our education and outreach programs that include a fair number of pollinator programs that are taking place uh, throughout the country. Um, so that's kind of my main role with the organization. Uh, the Eddie Vedder reference comes from I'm a huge uh, Pearl Jam fan. I've seen him a number of times. I think the last time uh, we were on, he actually even named the podcast. I think it was Pollinators and Pearl Jam. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that hurt or helped traffic, but, but I'm a Pearl Jam fan too, so we're going to ride with it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so set us up for this particular conversation. I, I, I mentioned that uh, we're here specially to for this particular episode to celebrate Pollinator Week, and we've got a couple of folks that you work with extremely closely. Uh, why, why don't you go ahead and, and start the introduction for us? Yeah, so we've got a couple folks from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on with us today, and we've asked them to be on because they're just great partners in a lot of things we're doing across the landscape when it comes to habitat, and specifically pollinator habitat. So I thought that would be great guests to have on just to talk about a lot of our partnerships that we have going on and just a lot of the things the service has going on related to pollinators and habitat across the across the country. So we've got uh, Anne-Marie Propotich on. I hope I didn't butcher that last name, Anne-Marie, so feel free to uh, jump in there if I did. Propotich. Um, Propotich. Right? Thank you. Yeah. She's it. giving me the inaudible thumbs up, which works great on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working real close with Anne-Marie the last couple of years. Um, they were partners in a lot of our education and outreach efforts this last year related to our Youth Pollinator Habitat Program and then the pilot of our Milkweed in the Classroom Program 
uh, that we rolled out last year. So um, I know Anne-Marie will do a great job here today and talk about a lot of things they're working on from a service standpoint. And then we also have uh, Sergio uh, Perlusi, if I got that last name right, Sergio, <laughs> on with us today uh, from the service. So happy to have you guys. Yeah, and he Sergio holds the distinction as the only Sergio I know in the wildlife conservation world. All right. Do you know any other deal. Sergios? You know, I haven't met any. It'll be a big day <laughs> when I do. <laughs> so let's start. Emory, why don't you introduce yourself to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience? Because uh, you got a really unique background, and I, I want to hear a little bit about it. And then I've got some questions for you because uh, I know some of some of your backgrounds really interesting. Well, well, thank you, Bob. Um, as you said, my name is Anne Marie Krumpetich. I am a conservation coordinator within our science applications program at the Fish and Wildlife Service. And um, been with the program here for about five years, as Drew said, really coordinating with important partners like, like Pheasants Forever. And I've got my background here at Fish and Wildlife Service. I've been with the service over a decade and started with as boots on the ground, like many of us in wildlife conservation, working on our national wildlife refuges and through our private lands program called the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. So got to work hand in glove with the people that are doing the good work. And now I find myself working again with wonderful folks like yourselves, trying to further wildlife conservation and, and topics like monarchs and pollinators, which I'm excited to talk with you all about today. So in advance of this um, uh, podcast, I got your biography. And there were two areas that really um, heightened my interest. One was uh, black-footed ferrets, uh, that you did, you've done some work on black-footed ferrets and not knowing a lick about black-footed ferrets. Uh, give me, give me a, you'll make this educational for me. Tell me a little bit about black-footed ferrets. <laughs> well, um, my introduction to the Fish and Wildlife Service was actually because I was an undergraduate student in Colorado at Colorado State University. And of course, when you start your wildlife conservation career as a young buck, you, you got to do things for free. So I volunteered and I had a volunteer opportunity at what is called the National Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center. Did you know there was such a thing? <laughs> um, it's actually a facility that's that's owned and managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's where we do our recovery efforts because this black-footed ferret is an endangered species. So I got my start and introduction with the Fish and Wildlife Service by um, doing some grunt work with all the black-footed ferrets and getting them ready to be re reintroduced to the wild. Cool. And also on your biographies, you've done some work in with avian influenza, yeah, uh, it, which has some obvious uh, interest points for an organization like ours. What, tell us about um, avian influenza. What you know, maybe the basics of what it is, and if that's something that our listeners in 2020 should be concerned about from a pheasant and quail population perspective. Sure. So. My my role with avian influenza was really how I was introduced from a paying job perspective in conservation. Um, I was hired on 
when avian influenza really was starting to gain national attention and, and pick up transmission rates and, and got on the radar here for us in North America with our wild bird populations. So back in around 2008, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service, along with many other conservation organizations, were starting to rev up our surveillance protocols. So what does that mean? It meant <laughs> it means swabbing ducks and swabbing really? birds and migratory and migratory birds to test to see if they were transmitting this this bird flu. Mm-hmm. And that's how I, I started working with our National Wildlife Refuge System. Um, my nickname in the field with the Official Wildlife Service and, and the local folks was I was the duck swabber. so i uh, at that time was working in missouri at our national wildlife refuges um squaw creek now las bluffs national wildlife refuge and swan lake and i worked with hunters hunters um you know harvesting waterfowl i would sit at the check stations and i would swab a duck both ends of a duck and send them off to a testing lab so that's that's a little history of how i uh Got, got my first paying job in the wildlife hmm. conservation field. Wow. Because you know, um, duck swabber. You got a duck yeah, swabber. So, <laughs> so what's the what's the latest? Is it, you don't hear about avian influenza very much. I mean, I think maybe two months ago, I, I believe they found some, um, uh, maybe in a turkey farm in North Carolina, if I recall correctly. But you don't hear about it in... Uh, waterfowl populations, and it's very rarely linked to pheasants and quail, but I'm certain that it's a possibility, right? So that's, that's exactly the reason why that we do surveillance and monitoring of, of these flus. There's just like you may hear common colds and flus, there's many different strands of it. And Hmm. right now I, um, not that I'm the most current up to date on the research, but it's, it is still being monitored and there's still surveillance protocols, not as intensively as that have been done previously, but you do hear about them and, mm-hmm. and they are transmissible, of course, across avian species, but it's between the, the feds and, and the state fish and wildlife agencies, whether they're monitoring migratory species or resident bird populations, like you just referenced turkeys, um, we're, we're doing okay right now. Good. Not something listeners should be worrying about, but aware of. Right, right. Well, you got a fascinating background, and it's it's always interesting to talk to wildlife professionals in the kind of the ladder they climb to get to different positions, you know, to go from black-footed ferrets to avian influenza, the duck swabber, to, to now, you know, you're working on monarchs and pollinators and... Um, you know, that I think that diversity and experience probably rounds out biologists and, and provides a great insight the further you go. Um, so thank you for joining the podcast. And uh, I'll transition to Sergio, a gentleman that I've known a little bit over the last couple of years, kind of been the po- uh, point person for our organization with National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic and getting the, the partners program on the show floor at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. So thank you, first of all, for, for the Feds, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service's long-standing support um, of that event, but then our organization overall. 
give us give us your background. Any black footed ferrets in your background, Sergio? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, anyway. <laughs> and by the way, we love Pheasant Fest. We love going there every year and and showing off what we do and and uh, seeing you guys. So thank you all for putting that event on. But um, so I've been with the Fish and Wildlife Service for about 15 years. And most of that, and even before that in my graduate career, has been working with private landowners and our private lands program, Partners for Fish and Wildlife. So I started off working with rice farmers in southern Louisiana, went on to the service where I worked with landowners in Michigan and Ohio and Alabama and Idaho and Georgia. And a lot of that was boots on the ground, started off just like Anne-Marie. Sorry to say that I'm not much of a biologist anymore. I'm more of a bureaucrat here in our regional office, but that's okay. I manage our Partners for Fish and Wildlife program for our eight-state region Um, and been here for about three years and uh, been doing a ton of work with you all. Haven't done a podcast yet but uh, <laughs> but yeah excited to be here so partners for fish and wildlife program um mm-hmm. that's a um a program that folks probably have heard about reading news stories but explain what what that means to the average person and how um some of the goals of the program Sure, absolutely. Yeah, the program started just over 30 years ago. And in fact, it started here in Minnesota and Western Minnesota around Fergus Falls. And it's grown since then. We have programs in all 50 states in the country. And the reason it's grown is because it's a voluntary program. We work with landowners that want to restore habitat on their property and um, we stay involved with them throughout the project that they want to do, whether it's a wetland restoration or a grassland restoration or a stream or planting longleaf in the southeast or you know stream restoration out west, whatever the case may be, um, we, we remain as flexible as we can um, with landowners. We offer financial assistance and sometimes more importantly, technical assistance. You know, our biologists are experts in the field and um, uh, our landowners gravitate toward that. And, and, and it's in the name of the program, it's partners. So none of the projects we do are done by ourselves. They're all in partnership, a lot with Pheasants Forever, some with Ducks Unlimited, um, other NGOs, other county governments, municipalities, whoever we can partner up with, um, you know, because we don't have a whole lot of funds to bring to the table, but we do have expertise to bring to the table and we can pull mm-hmm. partners together to get projects done. And um, it's really, it's been the passion of my career getting to know landowners all over the country and see the dedication that they bring to their properties, their creativity, their energy. It, it fuels us seeing that and, and interacting with that. So it's, it's a great program. We have biologists all over the landscape that are, ready and willing to meet with with private landowners that that want to do something on their property and that's recreational landowners that's agricultural folks that have you know row crop or or grazing systems it's schools um you know it's it's any land that's non-state and non-federal we can 
we can work on. And that provides a great transition into the meat of this particular episode, right? The, the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program is, it, you know, we've been intimately involved at, as Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever for decades, working with Fish and Wildlife Service. It's always been sort of focused on pheasants and upland grassland habitat for the purpose of pheasants. And it's evolved quail in the Southeast and different um, parts of the country. And over the course of the last, say, decade, you know, there's there's been this broader view, um, pro- society at whole, but also within our organization of doing a better job of thinking holistic, holistically about a landscape approach and not just knowing that when you do habitat work for with the goal of a particular species, it's it's that web of life we all learned about in third grade, right? And it it interconnects to um, cleaner water, more butterflies, healthier bee populations, and thus the result of why we're talking um, today in conjunction with Pollinator Week is our relationship with Partners for Fish and Wildlife Service has evolved like many relationships evolve. And we are doing so much these days with with uh, our partners and our friends at the federal um Fish and Wildlife Service and, and USDA and all the other agencies that um, we wanted to take this opportunity to highlight some of those efforts that we're, we have going on with the Fish and Wildlife Service that is really benefiting a species or a couple of um, couple of categories of species, bees and butterflies that are in se- severe decline. So, so let's start there. Let's kind of a state of the state for bees and monarchs as we as we talk about pollinator week um i think most of america knows that it you know birds i'm sorry um pollinators honeybees and monarch butterflies have been in a bit of a crisis for say the last five years seven years that been heightened awareness where do we stand right now in 2020? How are the what's the state of our honeybees first, and our our monarch butterflies second? And, and maybe Anne Marie can help uh, um, give us some context. Sure, I'd, I'd love to kick us off here. Um, you know, Bob, you were saying the last five or, or ten years, we're starting to realize these these bugs, these critters, are starting to tank, but but that's what we know of. I mean, that's just what our science is telling us. It could be that these pollinators have been, we've been losing ground on them for, for a long time. And, and we just don't have a good handle on that. But what we do know is they are in trouble. You know, we, we hear that honeybees are, are declining drastically. And, you know, for us at Fish and Wildlife Service, I'll just say this is hitting home too. Um, we just listed under the endangered species list, our first, um, our first insect, which was the rusty patch bumblebee. Hmm. And and now the last five years, you know, we've gotten a lot of attention as a conservation community in the American public, because now we're learning monarch butterflies, their population is going down. So just as a collective whole, I guess I would like to just say, we're learning more and more every day as science informs us that 
we're not doing so good when it comes to learning about pollinators and the insect communities and what their populations currently are. They're, they're all showing similar tw- trends, which are they're going down. Mm. And Drew, this is a great place as a biologist and in, in the spokesperson for pollinators at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And you've done this before on other podcasts, but knowing that we have some new and unique audiences, connect the dots for folks on why we care in the hunting community about pollinating honeybees and monarch butterflies, how that intersects with pheasants and quail. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like I said, I know we've talked about this a lot over the last probably five years, Bob, trying to make that connection between upland birds and insects. So, you know, where the connection comes in is for the first six to eight weeks of life, that's primarily all upland game birds eat um, as chicks. So, you're a quail chick the size of, of a bumblebee, basically. Uh, you spend a lot of time foraging on the ground, and you're looking for those soft-bodied insects and that those little protein packets, we like to call them. So um, that type of habitat, which we never called called it that before. We never called the work we were doing pollinator work, but what we were trying to do is establish this quality brood-rearing habitat, which is broadleaf flowering plants that attract those soft-bodied insects, provide good aerial coverage from above from aerial predators, but allow ground, open ground at, at the ground level for those chicks to be able to walk around and feed. Uh, super important from what the research has told us. So again, we never called it that. We were basically calling it brooding habitat for years and years. But right. Which isn't wrong. Which right? isn't wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think, uh, you know, now with all the pollinator issues that are taking place, it gave us an opportunity to, to, to speak to a little bit of a broader audience about a stuff we're doing, the habitat work we're doing for pheasants and quail is great habitat for honeybees, monarchs, native bumblebees, uh, that are all, you know, all, all taking a hit right now. So um, that's really the connection of why we're, we're playing in this space and involved in the pollinator spaces. That's it's the same habitat. It really is. And, and tell us a little bit about, you know, you, playing in this space, some of the programs that, uh, that that we've integrated into our organization to help deliver both brood habitat and pollinator habitat. Yeah. Um, I would say the one of the biggest things that we've done, um, at least from a field standpoint, is, you know, when I started 15 years ago, I was looking, just going back and looking at an old seed brochure, um, like our seed mixes that we were recommending, wildlife seed mixes, and they were five form season grass species and alfalfa and sweet clover, you know, and that was, that was a good wildlife mix and, you know, 15 years ago. And that's changed a great deal. Um, you know, I think what research has told us is that, you know, we need to be much more diverse with our mixes. Um, and now we have mixes that are, you know, can be up to upwards of 80 different species that we're planting on the landscape that are doing provide that really quality brood habitat, but also provide, you know, needed forage for those insect species as well. And and something that we don't often value enough, it's just beautiful, right? I mean, when, when somebody can look on a grassland stand with 80 species in it, I mean, it almost makes you cry uh, how startlingly beautiful it is. And yeah, you know, we, we always put a, 
a value on things in terms of, you know, what's the monetary value of pollinators and the monetary value of, of uh, the hunting industry, the, the, the cost of that seed. When you look out on a grassland with 80 species in it, try to put a dollar figure on that, right? I mean, it's, it's like the old, the old uh, commercial, it's priceless. I mean, it is just, it, you know, you know the, the power of Mother Nature when you see the blues and the purples and the yellows and the oranges and it's all alive and you can hear the buzzing and the cackling and the whistling. That is at, at its heart, at its very foundation, to why I, I would imagine all of you went into biology and got a degree. That's why we do these things. And if you just boil it down and just look, I mean, you can imagine, you, it, it, you know, in that July month when everything is just alive, that is, that is why we do this, right? Sorry to interrupt you, but. No, that's absolutely, absolutely right, Bob. I say we, we've learned a lot in the last 15 years because I remember when we were just kind of starting to get involved in doing CRP upgrades with mid-contract management. I re totally remember this. It was probably about 15 years ago, so I wasn't on very long. We were uh, doing a tour visit on a CRP site in northeast Nebraska. And we went to one site that this old CRP probably enrolled in 1985 and hadn't been touched since. And it was nothing but smooth brome, just monoculture smooth brome. And I remember the tour guy was just like, just take a listen for a minute. Tell me, tell me what you hear. And it was pretty quiet. And then the next site we went to that had been upgraded, um, you know, a diverse mix planted on it. And they say it was, you could just hear the insects in it. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, you know, the research was telling us that this is much more productive, uh, you know, not only for the insects, but obviously if the food's there, uh, the birds are going to be there as well. So that, that's been one big change I've certainly seen. It's just the way our seed mixes and the way we, we do do management on those, on those plants. But I would say the other big change has just been from an education and outreach standpoint. Um, you know, when I started eight years ago, you know, pollinators were just becoming a big thing in the news, especially honeybees and monarchs weren't far behind that. But, you know, to some degree, our organization had had some trouble getting into schools at time for doing education programming, just because I think a lot of the times, um, you know, administrators are looking at pheasants forever, quail forever, and they just think we're hunting organization and didn't think we had anything to offer in terms of educational programming. But when we developed some programming around specific, you know, specific pollinator type programs or youth pollinator program or milkweed in the classroom, uh, that absolutely helped open the door for us to get into some of these schools. Uh, classrooms to be able to teach folks about the importance of conservation and habitat. Yeah. Those, those have been the big changes I've seen. Yeah. When, and do you find like the, the school momentum is growing or is that at a saturation point with um, in today's society? No, I absolutely uh, believe it's still growing. Um, there's more and more of our partners out, you know, putting great programming out there for schools and classrooms. And, you know, when I showed up eight years ago and talked about monarch butterflies, you know, and you started asking just basic questions of you know, what they knew about the monarch butterfly. They didn't know, didn't know much at that time. Mm -hmm. How we go, it's totally different. They're, they're already kind of clued in to the, to the issue and mm -hmm. take to fix it. So that's kind of cool to see and see that transition over time. But, 
teachers are really, you know, still really interested in teaching and getting kids outside to, uh, to learn. So um, I see it continuing to grow. So when you transition to start thinking about the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Partners Program, how does Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever plug in to, to what the feds have going on? And then we'll transition and let Sergio tell us about your programs. Yeah, so mainly the Partners Program works with our field biologists. So our, many of our field biologists are farm build biologists. They're housed in USDA service centers throughout the, throughout the Midwest. Uh, so their job is to work with private landowners and help them enroll into federal USDA conservation programs. So, and uh, as Sergio mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we've got partners biologists spread throughout the country as well. Uh, you know, housed in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service offices and uh, working with private landowners as well. So when a lot of times when a, a landowner either can't get enrolled into a USDA program or may just need a little bit more assistance, that's when we can bring some other partners to the table and actually get that project done and on the ground. Um, so there's a lot of landowners out there where their projects just kind of seem to fall through the cracks in terms of eligibility for some of these USDA conservation programs. So that's where I see at least the field staff I'm talking to. That's where a lot of times the, you know, the partners program can kind of come in and, and offer some support and we can use some chapter dollars of support to actually provide some assistance to that landowner and get the project on the ground. Okay. So, so Sergio, when you're working with landowners, these are programs that, you know, I've always thought they're, that partners programs sort of stacked on top of USDA programs. And that may be the circumstance, but it's not always the circumstance, right? That's right. That's right. We do have plenty of situations where we can add a little something to a project that's enrolled in a farm bill program. But we also have, and probably the bulk of our projects are sort of standalone, um, separate from farm bill programs. So they're, you know, on recreational ground or some set aside on some, you know, row crop, or we're, we're right there in the midst of a conservation grazing system and helping folks set up that whole, the, you know, their whole grazing system. So it's a pretty big variety and we try to stay as adaptable as we can to whatever the needs are. We, you know, we want the, the, the resource needs, the wildlife needs to drive what we're doing and we've been able to keep the program, you know, able to respond to those needs and, and, you know, be as creative as we need to be with working with landowners. But, you know, on the ground working with Pheasants Forever, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, I, I did it myself when I was a biologist and now when I go uh, out in the field, when they let me out of the office, I still see that same relationship. You know, they're working hand in hand with, with PF Farmville biologists among many other partners. And one of us finds a landowner that might be more suited to someone else's program. And we want what's best for the landowner and what's best for the wildlife. So if it means steering that landowner to farm bill, or maybe the state has a program or, uh, you know, being butterfly fund or whatever it might be, you know, we make sure that we're pretty aware of all those opportunities for landowners and steer them in, you know, the, the best direction for them. So do you actively seek out landowners in a geography that you're trying to influence for certain uh, wildlife or habitat response? Or is it all come the other way where landowners are, hey, I want to do something for wildlife and 
one way or another, it's the landowner that's kind of um, getting introduced to you. You know, it's it's some of all of that. Okay. We're, you know, no matter how many landowners come in the door, and generally we do have a backlog of projects. Um, we have, you know, more demand than, than we can do. But that outreach component will always be a part of what we do. We always want to be doing the best projects in the best places that we can, and that will always require some level of outreach. Um, so, you know, we're out there giving presentations at, at, at year banquets or, or whatever other watershed group we can find. Um, I mean, I've, I've literally stopped when I've, when I've seen a great project on the side of the road and just went up and knocked on the door uh, which is not really the best approach when you're in uniform, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of that whole gradient of cold calls for that really great project or word of mouth, landowners coming to us, landowners coming to you all and, and you referring to us, us delivering talks wherever we can to get the word out about the program. You know, I think there's still a Partners for Fish and Wildlife ad in, in your your magazine, and we still right. get landowners from that from that ad coming through the door. So, so it's some of all of that. Explain um, a project that stops you, stops your vehicle. <laughs> and what's that look like that stops your vehicle and makes you go to a landowner and knock on the door? Give, a, give us a visual for something that that's, po you know, that powerful to you. You know, it, it depends on where you are in the country and I've worked in different places one of the examples that comes to mind is when I worked in Ohio and we were starting to sort of discover more or less this relic Oak Savanna place in, in Northwest-ish Ohio. And we're starting to see these enormous burr oaks that, you know, the branches are way out there. But, you know, when you, when you drive by it now, they're all filled in with understory growth with other trees and and you know that that baroque at some point in its life was out there wide open in the sun and there was prairie plants growing underneath it and you start to see this stuff and you're like wow if we could just you know do something to get rid of that understory or whatever that oak tree would be you know what it really wants to be again so that, that's one example that comes to mind but it's different you know it could be a long leaf you know mature long leaf down in Georgia or whatever that's yeah. been fire suppressed or, you know, it could be lots of different things. Anne-Marie, have you ever stopped your car and knocked on a door to thank a landowner or, or, or is there a project that has that same emotional response to you that you can visualize for us? Yeah, I, I have several and I'm just listening to Sergio's about a Baroque and I'm just like, yeah, I remember talking in Iowa where it's the Lust Bluffs along the river, same story. It's it's the potential of seeing what could be, mm. reopening these uplands and thinking about, ooh, I know what's under there. And <laughs> I've literally, I've literally, I haven't stopped, but I've been stopped in the field by that very landowner who's like, hey, what are you looking at? I'm like, I'm looking at this land. And he's like, my land? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> And it ends up being an hour to conversation about what what wildlife opportunities and the value that's there mm -hmm. and that we can cover together. And so many times, I think we've all been a part of that, where you see the potential 
And then you get to work on the land and you see the wildlife response and it come alive. And it's the same. I have a Baroque story too. It's just the beauty. Is, it's what's under there. And, and that's the privilege that we all get to work on with, with landowners and, and for the benefit of wildlife. I think that that's a, a wonderful point. And it leads me to remember like for folks that, um, you know, look at program or look, look at landowners and maybe don't own land than themselves. They look at a program um, that's out there and they, they think, well, that particular landowner only cares about the, the payment, the cost share or the, the, you know, the, the environmental result, but there are so many landowners. I mean, it's, it's, it's virtually hundred percent, right. That, they are motivated to do this because they love wildlife too. I mean, they literally love the wildlife. And if they can generate more wildlife on their own property, that is a incredible source of pride and a huge reason why they get into these programs. Yeah. There's, they all have to put food on the table and put their kids through college. So there's, there's these conservation programs that have an economic component. But under the pinning, all of that, like you say, the, the desire to see a black-footed ferret, right? Or, or to have more insects and have, you know, the migration of butterflies stop over and use their property by the millions. That is an incredibly strong component as to why people sign up and get involved in these programs, right? Actually, there's been a number of surveys done, Bob, you know, by groups that, you know, want to know why landowners are enrolling in the conservation programs and wildlife is at the top of the list almost every time. So, you know, there's not too many landowners, I, I believe, across the country who don't enjoy or want to have wildlife on their property. Um, so it really does come down to the work that we're doing um, with our partners program or with our farm bill vouchers program where it's just they don't know the programs that are available to them and they don't have the technical expertise on how to deliver that project on the ground so mm -hmm. you know piece. another you know land that we all own as public landowners right uh, are refuges but you know maybe i'm an anomaly but i, I don't think i am as a hardcore hunter I don't think about refuges a lot. I, I kind of consider them, well, those are off limits to me, which isn't, isn't entirely true. Right. And you know, when you, when you stop and think about it, there's an awful lot of wildlife that is hunted. That's also born there. You might not be able to, to hunt on that property, but we need those refuges for a lot of different reasons. Um, tell us about the connection for wildlife refuges in the, in the partners program and some of the things we've got going on as it relates to pheasants, quail, pollinators, and monarchs. Sure. Well, yeah, you mentioned that sort of notion that, that refuges are off limits and that's actually been one of our really big initiatives the past probably three years or so is to really um, see what lands we can get opened up to hunting to better align our regulations with the states that a refuge might be in 
and to open them up for more species if we can. So we've really been doing a lot of work to try to make them more accessible uh, to hunters and, and anglers. But, you know, it's, it, it is all connected on the landscape. I mean, if you look at the entire landscape, the refuge is, is sort of a, a small little, you know, postage stamp. So we are, as an agency, thinking about how that refuge fits in in the, in, in the bigger landscape. You know, we pull in our private lands program to maybe uh, more or less expand the, the boundaries of a refuge or work, you know, upstream of a refuge to try to improve the water quality on a refuge. You know, we have our ecological services program that's looking at species wherever they are. And Anne-Marie works for our science program that's trying to learn more about, you know, what's on the landscape. So, um, you know, our fisheries program as well, they're, they're putting in pollinator gardens on their, their lands that they manage. So, yeah, I mean, the refuges are sort of, you know, the, the gem that we like to show off, but we have a lot of other tools to really take that landscape approach, tie together the huntable populations with, you know, pollinators, because they are all connected. If you have good, um, you know, habitat for pollinators, well, that's probably good, good, good land to go hunting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I- I started thinking about that as like I've I've hunted a few refuges and I think about the Sand Lake um, Wildlife Refuge out by uh, Aberdeen, South Dakota, and um, boy, if you want a w- amazing place to chase pheasants, uh, I probably shouldn't be saying this on our podcast. <laughs> but, uh, it's I think it's a later season. It starts like mid December, but. Oh, it, it very, very little hunting pressure, tremendous habitat, and lots and lots of birds. And it is just, they're, they're overlooked from an upland perspective, upland bird hunting perspective, but so many refuges are open for that opportunity. Yeah. And, and I would just add too, you know, we have what we call WPA is waterfall production areas. That mm-hmm. is intently open to hunt that you know to draw the link here about to our conversation we're talking about the bugs and the butterflies and the birds that's a beautiful example of you know we have these lands that are bought by hunters right using that hunter money to put back on the landscape that truly truly do benefit the butterflies and the bees and of course the birds yeah and throughout you know they're throughout our country here so yeah particularly upland bird hunters well in in part of uh drew's part of the world i know some wonderful wpas um you know i made i, I cut my teeth on waterfall production areas in in west central minnesota learning how to f- hunt pheasants and the dakotas you're, you're exactly right wpas are, are gems um you know so so are you doing actively doing pollinator habitat improvement projects on WPA system? Yeah, so actually the, the whole Fish and Wildlife Service on all of the lands that we manage and own, we are actively doing monarch butterfly and pollinator projects, mm. knowing with the same concept that we're talking about, it's all about connected lands and waters. What's If we're putting down high diverse, good upland habitat, it's going to help the birds and it's going to help the bugs and the bees. And yeah, especially the last, I would say, five years mm. as you know, monarch butterflies have caught the attention 
of us, of the conservation community and public, the Fish and Wildlife Service, again, across our public lands and private lands, we've done about 250 to 300,000 acres a year. So looking across the last five years, we've intentionally done pollinator habitat projects, upwards of 1.7 million acres. So folks out there, and I, I hear it all the time, people love WPAs. Obviously, waterfall hunters love WPAs, but pheasant and uh, and quail hunters, as you head down the Great Plains area, uh, WPAs are are pure gems. The one criticism that comes up from time to time is, boy, there's an awful lot of brome. You know, it, it, now it's brome is is okay from a nesting perspective and you guys can correct me on that, but I think, you know, pheasants use brome um, and, and ducks to some extent. It's not wonderful, but it greens up quick and it's used, but it, then it sort of loses its value after nesting season. So the, the, the deliberate initiative by the fish and wildlife service to incorporate, brood, you know, pollinator habitats, slash brood cover, right, on, on WPAs is extremely exciting. And that's every upland hunter should be really, really excited to hear that that's happening on WPAs because that that could, you know, exponentially increase the, the wildlife value on um, some wonderful pieces of property. Um, all right, so as we think about Outside of the core, you know, we've talked about refuges and we've talked about WPAs. What are some of the other like non-traditional types of property that the partners program is working in conjunction with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever on to improve for pollinator habitat as well as bird habitat? Sure. And, and really, this isn't necessarily just the partners program, but one of the exciting things that the service has been getting involved with is some of those non-traditional partners. And, and that's service-wide. Um, you know, the Science Apps program that Anne-Marie works for, our Ecological Services program. But, but we're pulling in uh, rights-of-way organizations, utilities, transportations, departments of transportations that are run by the states, we're pulling in urban audiences. We're pulling in uh, the agricultural sector, whether that's producers or uh, you know some of the private sector that uh, that helps producers. And you know I've never seen some of these folks sit down at the same table before, but that's really what we're starting to see, and it's pretty exciting. Hmm. You know we're talking to folks that we haven't talked to before. Um, you know just last year, believe it or not, I gave a talk about pollinators at a bar in <laughs> Milwaukee and well that's, that. that's just but, because all event centers in Milwaukee are bars I right? so, but, <laughs> you know I, mean, I went on for an hour and people stayed they even came back after intermission and it's not because I'm a particularly effective speaker it's because it's such a fascinating topic mm-hmm. um, but all these organizations are starting to see how they can fit together you know you, you have you have ag producers right next to a, a right-of-way that's run by a, a transportation uh, organization or, or, or a state. Um, and, and, you know, they're all starting to see how there's ways to work together. And it's been pretty exciting to be part of pulling that together. I know Anne-Marie has been involved in a lot of that too. Yeah. I- yeah, I 
I was just going to add, like Sergio said, um, I think what's amazing here is it's not just Fish and Wildlife Service. I think it's all of us in the conservation community. We're starting to see all of these different stakeholders coming to the same table. Mm. You know, we're starting to have conversations that monarch butterfly has allowed us, now pollinators, now pheasants. It's opening the door for Mm. us to have these important conversations. And we can start to draw the connection to hunting and fishing and investing in our youth and the next generation here because of pollinators. And it's really awesome because for the first time, there are so many new people hearing the conversation about what is wildlife conservation and why is it important? And it leads to, you know, Drew's familiar and it's, it's probably goes beyond our organization, but for the last decade, we've talked about this approach as the mosaic, right? They, you know, there's, there's always this gravitation towards these great big block properties and, you know, in the perfect world, they're permanently protected WMAs or WPAs, but in order to have a landscape level impact, it really is the the roadways, the you know the right of ways, the ditches, the buffers, um, and pollinators do serve to link all those things together. Because we're never going to be back to the you know the the dawn of this country in the you know the seventeen hundreds where you know the buffalo were roaming and in the grasslands everywhere, right? It, but we can we can get some of those same wildlife benefits through this mosaic approach to wildlife habitat conservation across a broader landscape than you know we the pessimists and some of us probably thought was was a idea that had passed you know maybe a decade ago but there's a lot of optimism now and we can point towards a little butterfly or a little honeybee as the reason for that optimism. Um, Drew, well, you know, give us a couple things as folks listen to this and they, and they want to, they want to participate. And this would be the same question for you, Anne-Marie and for Sergio, but we'll start with Drew. Folks are listening. They want to be a part of the mosaic in their own communities, right? They want, they want more butterflies. They want more pheasants. They want more quail. They want more black-footed ferrets. I don't know. I don't know if that applies. But <laughs> what what can they do to get involved? A through pheasants forever and quail forever. Sure. Um, there's a couple things. Now we have a couple different programs related to education and outreach. One is our youth pollinator habitat program. You know, started in around 2014. Um, we've done over 400 projects and had. Um, you know, we're, clo- we're coming close to about a thousand acres of habitat enrolled in that. That's all planted by, you know, hand planted by junior high school kids. <laughs> we'll thought when you think about it. Um, so that's one program that we, you know, obviously we have to fundraise for because we offer some financial assistance to pay for the seed and the site prep and all those kinds of things. And we offer it to schools and, and communities throughout the entire Midwest. So that's one way people can get involved if they, a, have a location that they would like to see planted back to pollinator habitat. I encourage them to reach out and we can connect them with the local pheasants forever and quail forever chapter to get the, get the process started. If you happen to be a uh, school teacher listening to this podcast and you thought, think that would be a great program for your students. 
Um, go to our website and find all the information there, but reach out to us. I'd be happy to get connected with the chapter and get that project off the ground. So that's one way. So they could easily participate in that. Uh, the second way would be we just developed and piloted a new program called Milkweed in the Classroom uh, this last year. And basically what that program is, it's a turnkey um, program where teachers can essentially order a kit that comes with everything they need to plant milkweed plants with their students in the classroom. Also comes with curriculum. The curriculum is designed for um, third through fifth grade, and it meets all the national science standards. But really designed to be super turnkey where the, you know, the box shows up, comes with all the instructions in the curriculum, and the teacher can roll with that in the classroom during the spring growing season, and the kids can plant milkweed plants from seed and then take those plants and either plant them on a schoolyard habitat project or take the plants home and plant them in their own own backyards. So we're pretty excited about that. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that particular program right now. So um, we're still building some things around it, but we'll be ready to go for for next next school year. Um, so those are the two big ones. You know, I'm sure Anne Marie will, will touch on it a little bit, but you know, and we alluded to it earlier that this the cool thing about pollinators it really is and can be an all hands on deck approach. So even if you live in an apartment complex and want to grow a milkweed plant or two on your balcony, believe it or not, that's additive. <laughs> so uh, it can be as simple as that to if you're uh, you know, uh, a, a large landowner, want to do a large landscape project, we obviously have programs for that. Or you own a little acreage outside uh, an urban setting, a suburban setting, that um, there are actually programs to help you put projects on the ground there as well. So it is an all hands deck deck approach and every little bit helps. So, you know, we have resources available within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to provide that technical expertise and how to get that done. So you can find all that information on our websites. Yeah, well, and you brought up a great point that I skipped over on our, on our notes, and that is the role that urban areas play, which is you know, it's, it's a Freudian slip. Freudian is probably the wrong word, but it was a slip, right? Like you, you normally think from a um, wildlife and a hunting perspective, rural, right? Maybe suburban. And I completely glossed over the urban component of the opportunity here. And that's, that's a, you know, sort of indicative of the issue that urban areas can play a role in some of the benefits, right? Absolutely. Um, there's been some research out of Chicago, um, the Field Museum out of Chicago, and uh, just to indicate what the opportunity is for, uh, for, for habitat in an urban setting, specifically for monarchs, and it's statistically significant where it really? can actually provide value uh, to the monarch butterfly. And sure, that's you know not going to do anything for pheasants and quail, but I think the bigger issue there is, is that we can get to a new audience an urban audience um, and just teach them about the importance of conservation habitat because at the end of the day, they're all voters. Um, yeah. Want well, polls voting for conservation. And it's a great point. Uh, it starts a conversation with an audience that doesn't normally occur. I, I remember a couple years ago, a niece of mine um, was asking about, well, where do pheasants live? And it's like, oh, they live in the grass. And to her, you know, she looked at the grass as the lawn. She's like, I've never seen a pheasant in our grass, you know, but 
but it, it goes to the point of, you know, if you can start the conversation about planting pollinator habitat in an urban setting to at least create the beginnings of the pang in their heart um, and in their head about why this is important and how it connects it. I had, it harkens back to the Leopold ethic, right? Like food that my chicken sandwich didn't come from a styrofoam package. You know, it came from an animal that lived on the land. And ultimately, the more we can connect those dots at every level of today's society, you know, it does call all come back over and over and over to the teachings of Leopold, which uh, we, you know, if, if you have, if listeners out there have never read a Sand County Almanac, then just hit pause right now on the, on the, on your podcast, go to amazon.com or wherever you buy your books, your local bookstore, dial up a Sand County Almanac by Le Aldo Leopold, A-L-D-O Leopold. Right? Am I right? I'll Absolutely. You're right. And it, it probably only costs you like five ninety five to buy, um, you know, a paperback copy of a San County Almanac. It it is as important of read today in twenty twenty as it was when it was first written in nineteen. Help me out. Was it nineteen sixty two, sixty four, or is it a little bit earlier than that? No, I think it was in the 60s, Bob. I don't remember exactly for sure, but I think that's... But it could have been written in in 2019. It is yep. absolutely relevant. And the, one of the greatest pieces of literature, saying nothing about environmentalist literature, it is the foundation on which all conservation organizations stand today. And... Sorry to go get out on my soapbox, but it is just absolutely, um, it'll change your life if you read it. So go, so go read it. Um, now you can hit the play button again and I'll come back, but, uh, it, you know, folks really legitimately a great read. Uh, Sergio and Marie, tell us a little bit about how folks can get involved uh, with partners program, if this has piqued their interest and they would like to learn more. Sure. I'm happy to, you know, I don't know if you, you distribute notes or email addresses or whatever, but go for it. Absolutely. Um, and, and folks can get in touch with me directly and I can get them to the right place in the right state and the right, right part of their, their state. Um, and we have biologists, like I said, that are, that are ready to meet with, with willing landowners. So, um, if that's the best way to do it, or I can get you our contacts for, for all of our states, whatever works best, but I, I'm, you know, I'm happy to do that. And how do people reach you? What's your email address? Sergio, S-E-R-G-I-O underscore P-I-E-R-L-U-I-S-S-I at FWS.gov. And I think there's a more generic partner's email address that I don't know off the top of my head, but um, but happy to do that. And are you, uh, if, if you're, are you looking to target particular areas of the country or particular types of habitat that if people hear that, that might be like, whoa, then I better really reach out. Sure. Yeah. We always try to, we have pretty limited resources. 
So we're trying to put those in the best places on the landscape so we can actually have a benefit uh, to wildlife. And that varies based on the state. And we go through that process every every few years to make sure we're updating that, evaluating that, and, and putting those resources in the right places. So there are, we call them focus areas, you know, in different states. And they tend to align with important places to the states, um, you know, to you all. We try to make that a, um, include other stakeholders in that process. But yeah, we do have, we do have those focus areas set up in each state. If somebody goes on the partner's website, would they be able to find like a focal area map? It depends on the region. Some of them are up to date and some of them are not. Um, okay. But but we have that and we can get that to whoever, you know, might have trouble finding it online. Okay. Uh, Amory, if folks wanted to contact you with more questions. Um, if... It'd be the same thing, Anne-Marie, A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E underscore K-R-M-P-O-T-I-C-H I'd like, at gov. <laughs> I'd like to buy a vowel. I know, I know. <laughs> so bad, so bad. We need those rock star names, Bob, that yeah. you gave Drew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Drew, if folks want to reach out to you, uh, throw out your, your email address. Yeah, it's uh, D-L-A-R-S-E-N at <laughs> Uh What have I missed in our conversation about Pollinator Week, Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? Is there any, any key messages or programs that I have overlooked? Anne Marie's raising her hand. Well, I would just like to say if, you know, if there are listeners out there or maybe your spouse isn't one to, to get excited about moving dirt or getting dirty, there, there are ways to get connected to the conservation topics that we've talked about today that directly contribute to monarch butterfly and pollinator conservation. And it's, it's really cool and it's a way to contribute to science. So I just wanted to throw out that people can engage no matter where they are in the country in citizen science efforts and two, I wanted to mention are there's an NG, a non-governmental organization like yourselves here at PF called Monarch Joint Venture. And they they have things on their website. It's called, again, Monarch Joint Venture. If you want to just spot a butterfly out your window or if you want to look for a monarch butterfly egg, all of that kind of stuff can be recorded. You can tag monarch butterflies. Hmm. And what's really cool is another organization called Journey North. Um, again, an NGO, they track critter migration. So not just monarch butterflies, but hummingbirds and other migratory species. So if you are or know somebody that doesn't want to move dirt that we've talked a lot about, you can still contribute to wildlife conservation by just looking out your door, plugging into an app. And it's a great way to get your kids, your grandkids started in the wildlife conservation conversation. Great point. Sergio, what else did I miss? You know, I, I guess I just like to echo that and say, just get out and, and, and learn and observe. I mean, I can just speak from myself personally. I'm embarrassed at how, how little I knew about pollinators before this became a thing five years ago. I mean, I knew next to nothing and I was a wildlife biologist and, and uh, you know, started putting pollinator plants in our backyard. You got a little pollinator garden. i Two little girls and we go out there and look at them the different colors and shapes and the more you learn the more passionate you become about that and start to see those connections so you know 
there's always a place to put plants in the ground wherever you are and and then to go look at the stuff uh you know coming to visit those plants yeah excellent point drew closing thoughts yeah i would just want to throw out there that you know the u.s fish and wildlife service has been they're great partners in a lot of things we do you know two big programs we didn't mention you know ohio pollinator habitat initiative missourians for monarchs the service was uh very integral in getting those off the ground and going and they're doing some amazing things in those states for for pollinators and they've just built some really awesome coalitions of groups i never thought we would work with uh so um I mean, we mentioned it a number of times, but there's not too many things that we don't work together on anymore. And I'm looking forward to uh, working with both Anne Marie and Sergio here in the future going forward. So, And uh, for listeners that maybe are in Missouri in particular, we did an entire episode yeah. with the uh, Missourians for Monarchs uh, partnership. Uh, fascinating conversation about the life cycle of the monarch butterfly trace in that uh, that species from way up in Duluth, Minnesota, following it down the I-35 corridor to Missouri, and then all the way, and yes, I have learned how to pronounce it, the Oyamel, I almost had it, <laughs> Oyamel <laughs> forests in South America. Um, it is fascinating to, to learn about the life cycle and the generations that it takes for monarchs to, to make that trip um, across um, across the continent, really. So uh, I definitely encourage you to listen to that Missourians for Monarchs uh, episode. I think it was from uh, February-ish timeframe, February 2020. Um, really, really fun conversation. As this has been, been really a pleasure to learn more about the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program. Anne-Marie, the duck swabber. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm never going to be able to call you by your real name, right? I know, and I thought that was going to be swept under the rug. <laughs> well, it, in my defense, you you did bring it up. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking with you. And Sergio, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you so much again for how much you brought to the table uh, to our organization through not only this program, but as, as I mentioned earlier, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Um, we really, really value the relationship that we have with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Thank you. And thank you, well, thank Bob. you Bob. Thank you, Drew. Yeah, thanks, Love working with And so if we're going to call um, Anne-Marie the duck swabber going forward, then and Drew's going to be Eddie. <laughs> yeah, uh, Eddie Vetter uh, into the future, and he's he's okay with that. I think I'll take that one. Absolutely, <laughs> Drew. Thanks for pulling this together. Uh, Pollinator Week all week. Uh, what do you want people to do for Pollinator Week? Uh, there is one thing I did forget to mention. So Anne Marie had mentioned Monarch Joint Venture, another great partner we have. Um, we actually rolled this out last year, just about Pollinator Week, but we. We're working with them on just kind of a campaign called Miles for Monarchs. So it's just a way if people want to get outdoors and do a little exercising and help raise some awareness and they can help raise some money uh, for what we're doing for pollinators and monarchs. It's an easy way to do that. 
And if you just, uh, we'll be promoting that throughout Pollinator Week as well. But if you go to the Monarch Joint Venture website or our website, we'll have some information regarding miles from Monarchs. So I'd encourage people. That's a really easy way for people to participate and uh, get outside and get be active. And we even have uh, Pollinator t-shirts on sale in the uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever marketplace too now don't we i forgot about that yes we uh <laughs> um some of our marketing folks put together a really cool uh image for some pollinator shirts so if you want to sport some cool pollinator uh wear uh, we have it available yeah well all week folks uh pollinator week will be celebrating on our websites pheasants forever and coil forever.org we'll be celebrating on our facebook pages instagram twitter and obviously through this podcast, because it all is about the web of life. Pollinators, honeybees, monarch butterflies, black-footed ferrets, uh, pheasants, quails, sharp tails, and us. Let's not forget about us, because we all need places to roam, food to eat, and water to drink, just like our wildlife critter friends. And it, uh, it all starts with habitat, habitat for us and habitat for everything else. So we encourage you to participate in Pollinator Week. It's critically important, uh, and as is our mission. And if you're not currently a member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, certainly invite you to join. Uh, we need all the members that, uh, that have a similar desire to help uh, improve this planet and we can do that through habitat thanks for listening folks thank you to Anne marie krupatich nailed it Ooh. sergio <laughs> perlucci it's like uh, i'm announcing at the metrodome and drew the eddie vetter of pheasants forever <laughs> larson uh i'm bob sapier thank you so much for listening saying always follow the dog something good will rise thanks folks <laughs>